Welcome to Paradas, a broadcast dedicated to helping Christians develop a biblical worldview, preparing us to think scripturally and soundly about our world today. I'm your host, Brian Nixon. Joining me on today's broadcast are my two co-hosts, Dr. Joseph Holden, author, pastor, and president of Veritas International University, and Luke Betzner, pastor, author, and director of institutional effectiveness at Veritas International University. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Brian and Luke. Uh, Looking forward to our time together. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, throughout this semester, our focus has been on apologetics. We've used Dr. Holden's book, Living Loud, as our springboard. On our last episode, we answered the question, if God exists, why evil? If you missed the episode, I encourage you to check it out. This week, we're answering the question, are miracles possible? As our listeners know, many critics of theism or the Bible have denied or denounced miracles. One such person was Thomas Jefferson. Because of Jefferson's theistic worldview, he compiled his own version of the Bible, taking out all the miracles. But one of the most outspoken critics of the miraculous was Scottish philosopher David Hume. According to Hume, the evidence in favor of miracles, even when supported by testimony, will always be outweighed by the evidence of natural law. In other words, Hume put nature above divine revelation. So Joe and Luke, we've got a heavy task before us to kind of show that Hume and others are are barking down the wrong track. So let's jump into this topic and let's begin by defining our terms. Joe, let's begin with you. What, What exactly is a miracle? Well, there are a lot of uh, ideas about what constitutes a miracles and various definitions out there, but the Bible is very clear. When you assemble the verses that contain miracles, you find that they are special acts of God in our natural world. They are acts that are supernatural, and they are exceptions to the laws of nature. In other words, miraculous events would not or could not occur on their own. And We know that since God is the source of all these special acts of miracles, that they are ones in which that cannot fail. They are things that happen in this natural world, and and instead of um, depending on a natural cause such as the instrument or the person working the miracle, oftentimes we see in Scripture, these acts are ones that are always successful and complete. In fact, you could put it another way. You know, miracles are special supernatural acts that are contrary or exceptions to the laws of nature. And that tells us that miracles are, though they're in this world, they're not of this world. They have a divine source. And whenever you look at a miracle throughout Scripture to help you define what they are, you find that they have certain components, at least two components, uh, that are a part of them in every miracle. The first one is they are purposeful events. In other words, they have timing, they have purpose, they have fit, they fit the situation and the context, and that's what really distinguishes it from an unusual or random act or event from the miraculous. And, you know, some people get those two confused. But there's a second component, too, 
in our definition, and that is that all miracles have a moral and theological dimension to them. In other words, you see Jesus throughout the Gospels, and he um, heals people, and oftentimes he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, rise up, take your bed, and walk. So for the purpose of understanding that he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, and that he was able to forgive sins, that miracle would be performed for all the onlookers to see and for the person who receives the miracle. I mean, we see this throughout Scripture. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses 3 and 4, it talks about the salvation that was first spoken of by the Lord Jesus Christ and about how his followers confirm that message through signs and wonders and miracles. So they are confirmatory. They confirm the message. They confirm the messenger. And that's very important in the Christian worldview because it is a supernatural gospel. And it's a lot of supernatural miracles going on within the pages of the scriptures. You know, you have the incarnation, the virgin birth, the parting of the Red Sea, and so forth. So these are, are, are very important special acts of God indeed. And let me just piggyback on that, Joe. You know, we, we hear it often in our culture, in our world today, someone will say, oh, that birth was a miracle. Or they'll say, that throw during that football game, how he caught it, that was nothing but a miracle. But if I'm understanding you correctly, those aren't miracles. Those are natural occurrences, maybe providentially directed, but they're not miracles as you defined it. Is that correct? That's correct, because there's no violation of the laws of nature, and uh, those are very natural events. I think what people use by the term miracle oftentimes in those examples you gave was more of hyperbole, and they use it as a figure of speech or an expression. And sometimes in so doing, we convolute the real meaning of what a miracle is according to Scripture. So good. So let me turn it over to you now, Luke. Um, why should Christians defend miracles? Why, why even bother with them? Why, why go, um, you know, to the extent and lengths we're going to, 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 you know, say that miracles not only plausible and possible, but they actually happen. Um, why are we defending miracles? It's a great question, Brian. And I think there is a sense in which miracles cannot be defended not because they're incapable of being defended, but in some ways they don't need a defense as an individual item. There is that sense, but it's not to the exclusion of being able to provide a reasonable explanation. And I think that Christians who would defend miracles are doing so for a couple of deeper reasons. It's sort of like when you have a cold, you're treating the symptoms, but you're not dealing with the virus that has to sort of work its course. But with miracles, miracles are the outcome of a much deeper understanding of the existence of God. So there's a sense in which, for instance, the miraculous, it can't be explained by definition. However, that doesn't mean that everything that doesn't have an immediate explanation, like Dr. Holden was saying, you know, things that people are just amazed by when they're using the term colloquially. It doesn't mean that just because something doesn't have an immediate explanation that it equates to a miracle. 
nor does it mean that Christians are using the idea of the miraculous to the exclusion of rational thought or in confirmation of some primitive mindset. Those who are the opponents of miracles are usually pretty pejorative about the underpinnings. And that's really what I think we're defending when we get in to defend miracles. So to defend miracles doesn't require a full understanding of how they happen, but rather who might be capable of such a thing. The defense of miracles ultimately then leads back to the persons, their existence, power, intentionality, which is typically the truer root of the the objection against miracles and a good reason as to why Christians should defend them. If one first accepts the existence of an almighty God with unlimited power, who's the creator, then it's not even a stretch to speak of divine transcendence, manifestations of the divine will and power in contrast to normal perceptions, normal laws, or beyond the capabilities of humans. Therefore, to defend miracles is to do more than one thing. It's to defend the very idea of divine transcendence itself and all that comes with it. The divine origin of scripture, as the idea of miracles, absolutely follows from the assumption of the divine, but it's also to demonstrate the cohesiveness of the scriptural record regarding these types of events. In other words, we not only believe in miracles because we believe in the God who performs them through various mediums, but we believe that the scripture that describes them comes from the same source. And therefore, it'd be fallacious to believe otherwise, as both the idea of transcendent truth and transcendent power rest upon the same premise of divine existence. And this this is really what we're defending, is that God has the right to act as he sees fit in the world that he creates. Mm. So good. So good. Very, very thoughtful. Thank you for that, Luke. Um, when I first was uh, licensed to ministry, I was, I was working at a brethren church, a, a German Baptist brethren church. And I remember having a conversation with a gentleman who we were discussing, um, you know, the creation of the world. And, and he, he was a theistic evolutionist. And of course, I, I believed in special creation. But he said, Brian, the difference between you and me is that you believe in magic where I believe that God worked through natural processes. So my question to you, Joe, is what is the difference between a miracle and what some would purport or position as magic? Kind of a, uh, you know, building a, a house of cards, if you will. Um, how would you distinguish uh, and differentiate miracles and magic? Well, there's a, a lot of ways to do that. And it's unfortunate that some people think that um, you know, a magician is on the same par as the biblical miracles we read at, of in Scripture. I mean, you can just, on the surface of it, miracles are under God's control, whereas magic is under man's control. You know, miracles are done at God's will. He's the source of the miracle, but magic is done at man's will. Uh, miracles are not repeatable. Magic is repeatable. You know, there's often deception involved in magic or sleight of hand, whereas miracles, there's no deception involved. You know, magic brings glory uh, to entertainment to people, whereas miracles are used to confirm, you know, God's word and always associated with good. And beyond that, there are certain characteristics of miracles that differ from magic as well. Uh, the first being, and very importantly, there's always uh, a miracles that we see in scripture. They're always instantaneous. They're never gradual. 
they're always complete. Uh, they're full. They're immediate. In fact, I can only find one miracle in Scripture that had maybe uh, two stages to it, and it was the healing of the blind man in Mark chapter 8. However, each of those stages were immediate and complete of the two stages. Um, but they're always instantaneous and always complete. And then secondly, they are always successful. They never fail. I mean, I, I watched a magician just last year, and and when we talk about magicians in a Christian context, we call them illusionists, not part of the occult, if you will. But sometimes tricks fail, but miracles never fail. They're always successful. And the reason is, is because Man, the instrumental cause of the miracle that God uses, um, is not the source of the miracle. God is the source, and he's infallible, whereas man is fallible. And if you're a magician, uh, you're a human being, and uh, many tricks can, can fail. There's only one instance in Scripture also that the disciples failed to cast out a demon, um, but it wasn't that God failed, it was that the disciples, the instruments that God used that were fallible and human, uh, they failed to appropriate prayer and fasting to be able to cast out that demon. And then, of course, Jesus immediately casts out that demon. There was no failure on God's part. And then there's never any relapse, finally. Um, you look at biblical miracles, you never see somebody falling back into that situation. And there's only one exception to this, and that is, you know, when Lazarus was raised from the dead or anybody else raised from the dead before Christ had risen from the tomb, uh, they would eventually have to die again. Uh, but that is following just the natural order of events for sinful humanity. It wasn't that the the resuscitation of a dead person uh, had failed. So there are many differences between the two, uh, not on the same level. Uh, one ultimately is orchestrated by God, and it's supernatural, and it is uh, will not or could not occur on its own here in this world, whereas magic tricks are, are simply repeatable events um, that can fail at time, and they're not always successful. So good. Thank you for that, Joe. Luke, I'm going to go back to something I opened up with, um, pointing to one of the biggest, greatest critics of both the Bible and the Christian faith, and that was David Hume. And of course, he said uh, the probability or possibility of, of miracles is always outweighed by natural law. So as I stated, Hume put nature or natural law above divine revelation. So my question to you is, how would you defend the possibility of miracles in light of what Hume and people of his ilk are saying? Um, are, are miracles even possible in, in, in this world? It really is one of the basic questions. And I think this does come down to a matter of presuppositions. So in the event that someone's trying to analyze a particular subject, but they're missing a tool, and then they need a little bit more help to be able to properly analyze all the dynamics of whatever it is that they're looking at, these folks sort of fit that analogy in that they have the tool of what would be secularly called metaphysics or the spiritual or the supernatural, 
they deliberately take that tool off their workbench and they choose the materialistic and they choose the naturalistic as the only lens through which they are willing to look. And so this becomes one of the classic contentions. Folks that aren't kind of disposed toward the idea of miracles will say, will say that they're not kind of disposed toward them because of the unlikelihood or that miracles are improbable. And then after applying that label of improbability, they argue for miracles being the least likely explanation to any event that seems to demonstrate a miracle simply due to their predisposition toward the improbability of miracles. So they seem to be using circular logic. They're saying, well, you cannot transcend the naturalistic. You cannot transcend the materialistic because that's all there really is. Therefore, all miracles, quote unquote, must have a naturalistic or a materialistic explanation. So they're limiting their tools deliberately to try to do what I would call an argumentum ad absurdum they're reducing this to the absurd because they're leaving out a particular perspective. And the irony, of course, is that trying to explain a true miracle from a naturalistic or materialistic perspective lands one in some very absurd territory itself, simply because there's no willingness to expand one's perspective. One ends up denying things that are just as real, even though they may not be tangible, when one chooses this perspective. But from a Christian worldview, we would gladly affirm miracles and even expect them due to the providential hand of God. They're part of our faith experience, and any Christian who's received an answer to prayer after having hoped against hope can vouch for God working miracles. So I would say not only are they possible, the world is filled with them and continues to be filled. It's not some rose-colored glass that we're looking through or some desperate thing we have to have in order for our faith to be sustained. It is simply a reality that is confirmed many times over. It reminds me, finally, of what C.S. Lewis portrays when he talks about the dwarves who would not be taken. Where trying to prove the existence of Aslan to this group of dwarves that were in connection with a couple of the children that were in the story. And Aslan standing there and the dwarves refuse to acknowledge him, even though he commits multiple acts to reveal his presence to them. They refuse to acknowledge. And he says this by ending that, that segment of the book. He says, no man is so blind as he who will not see. And I think that the possibility of miracles, that, that entire category of thought is often poisoned by that statement that Lewis makes. Mm, great insight, great quote. And I, I thank you for that, Luke. So, so Joe, kind of along the same lines here, you know, there are some denominations, and I'm, I mean the Roman Catholic Church when I say this, that really investigate the plausibility, the believability of a miracle. You know, there's, there's people that will make claims of the miraculous all the time. Um, and then, of course, the Roman Catholic Church will do years of investigation to determine if this is a true miracle or not. And then after the investigation, they'll, they'll make their judgment. And I think, you know, investigating, looking at it really is a way to safeguard and to to address uh, the believability of miracles. But my I guess my question to you, Joe, is twofold. How, how do we verify um, if something is truly miraculous, number one? And and really, are miracles believable um, in the sense that we have a cognitive understanding of nature being disrupted and God interacting, or 
do we just have more of a surface belief of, yeah, God, God could do it? Um, what is the litmus test to ensure that miracles are believable? Yeah, that's a great question, Brian. Um, I think that there's two questions actually uh, packed into this uh, idea of whether miracles are possible and believable or probable. One is coming from Benedict de Spinoza. He argued against the possibility of miracles, whereas David Hume in the 18th century ended up uh, arguing against the probability or the believability of miracles. Now, to the first person, Spinoza, you know, in the 17th century, he argued that the laws of nature were fixed and inviolable. There was no exception to these fixed laws of nature, of the universe, that helped the universe operate the way uh, it, it was operating. David Hume agreed with Spinoza in that, in that these laws of nature are fixed and inviolable. And I think that the flaw that people carry with them is in their thinking in one respect, and it, the other respect is evidential. Whereas these laws of nature, from the Christian perspective, they are not inviolable. They are uh, laws that are there that show us how the universe usually operates, not how the universe must in all occasions operate. So if we believe that the universe operates according to these natural laws, and it's the usual customary events of the world that we see, then there can be exceptions to them. It's like canceling third period for an assembly and then, you know, resuming uh, fourth period in the natural course of events. That's much like what miracles do. They're exceptions to the regular order of events. But these regular order of events are not fixed by any means. In fact, people reject the believability of miracles because uh, they simply haven't witnessed them. And what they will do is say that, uh, like David Hume did, he said that the natural experiences and the natural law is experienced by us uh, all of our life with maybe a few people might have seen one miraculous event. And so what he does is he say that since you didn't witness it, since it's not there for everybody to see, that we should not believe it. But then what do you do now when you have uh, people saying, well, do you believe in the Revolutionary War? You know, only the witnesses saw it. We don't see that today. It's not being repeated today. Or the San Francisco earthquake or or some other historical event that only happened once that you can't repeat in a laboratory or show somebody happening today. You'd be a complete historical agnostic without any knowledge of anything that happened ultimately only once. Um the good thing about it is we have eyewitness reports. We have uh, written testimony, and this goes to the believability question. The written testimony is really good because we have reliable witnesses. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were first century uh, witnesses, or they consulted the witnesses in order to write their gospels. Uh, that's what we look for today in the court of law, evidence, written testimony, eyewitness testimony from reliable eyewitnesses. And then secondly, 
you know, people make the mistake like Hume did, especially Hume, by adding the evidence instead of weighing the evidence for miracles. You see, Hume was a mathematician as well, and so he added up the number of days in somebody's lifetime that they experienced the natural world, and then add up the number of days that you experience the miraculous world. Well, of course, the natural world is a regularity that we experience all the time, and Ultimately, he would say the wise man would base his decisions on the regularity upon the natural world, and therefore you shouldn't believe in miracles. Well, he makes the mistake of adding the evidence instead of weighing the evidence. You see, adding the evidence just counts up the number of pieces of evidence, especially of people who didn't see any of the miraculous and expects it to be positive evidence to reject miracles. Whereas the person who weighs the evidence, it calls for an evaluation of the evidence, not just simply a counting or an adding like a mathematician of what potential evidence there may or may not be. And that's what we do today even in a court of law. We evaluate the evidence. In other words, the hundred people that did not have any knowledge or did not witness a crime can't supersede the one or two people, less a number, that did witness and have knowledge of the crime. So ultimately, both Spinoza's possibility argument and uh, Hume's believability argument fails because number one, they're self-defeating, and number two, they mishandle the evidence. They just don't deal with it fairly. And ultimately, it's a big, big issue because if we don't establish the possibility of miracles, that means there cannot be a son of God because the incarnation is a son of God. If there's no miracles, then there can't be a resurrection of Christ. And that would be a problem too. The whole of Christianity is dependent upon the physical resurrection of Christ, which is a miracle. That's why Paul says, Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead in Romans 1.4. So miracles have a huge stake in the Christian worldview. So good. Very, very helpful, Joe. Thank you for that. And particularly the Spinoza Hume, because as you know, they're they're two of the bigger critics against miracles. Uh, so back to you, Luke. Um, and Joe, Joe really did hit upon this and inferred this with some of his answers. But let's focus in on Jesus. Um, first of all, what are some of the ways he used miracles? And what was the purpose of of these miracles specifically related to Christ. Again, not going back to the creation of the world or the Old Testament miracles, but let's just hone in on Christ. How did he use them and what was the purpose of the miracles that Jesus did do? Again, a great question. I would say that Jesus used miracles as a divine signature. It was a connective tissue to promises, prophecies, titles, and other Old Testament events of which the Jewish people were familiar. Because of course, prior to his Beth, burial, and resurrection, there was no new covenant. And so because we know who God is, we can therefore, from his own words and his own actions, understand more of what he was trying to communicate. Jesus said very clearly that he came to show the Father and this was a clear statement of nature. He says, I and my father are one. 
So the Jewish people in their current understanding of monotheism, that God does not have a son, despite multiple Old Testament references, and that if God did have a son, it is Israel, and made multiple, uh, had multiple crises of identity when it came to the Old Testament portrayals of a pre-incarnate Christ's actions and the attributes of God that were being revealed both in the Jewish feasts, the, the, the foreshadowing about who Christ was. He was expecting them. This was to be the icing on the cake for them to know who he was. And he made this statement so many different times. John 6 comes to mind more quickly than others. As, as he tells them, if and even in John 8 as well, he said, you don't, you don't know my father, because if you knew my father, you would know me, because what I'm doing are exactly the same kind of works that my father has always done. He said, you've all been taught of the father, and yet for some reason you don't know who I am. So I think that's one of the primary things. He used them as a tool to reveal his identity, his oneness with the father, and hand in hand with that as he used them to reveal his attributes. And, and it is through the identification of attributes with which the Jewish people were already supposed to be familiar that they could have made the dynamic similarity and connected the dots. We find even his own disciples struggling with this, where he reprimands them, oh, ye of little faith. He also mentions this in John 14. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He's saying, believe in me in the same manner in which you have classically believed God and the stories of your heritage and the narratives that currently exist in your preserved scriptures. And, you know, he, he does the same thing where he's in the synagogue, where he says, this day are these scriptures or these words fulfilled in your ears where he, he kept making connections. He would do something, and then he would confirm this with scripture from Old Testament. You've heard it said. So he makes this constant comparison between his actions and the attributes that had already been revealed in the Old Testament, the kind of power that was exercised, and then his own power that was promised that when the Messiah would come, he would raise the dead, he would heal the sick, he would heal the lame, the deaf, the dumb. And he did these things, and they still refused to connect the dots. So we see him continuing to push forward to manifest these things. And then also not to be um, forgotten that in doing so, he was exerting and executing his will. And so in, in doing his miracles, it's not as if he was just showcasing it and he didn't care about the effects of what he was doing. The Bible specifically says he went about doing good. And so there was this sense in which he showed transformative power in the physical realm. And this was already brought up earlier in our conversation where he said, just so that you know, he said, which is easier to do, to say thy sins be forgiven you or to say, take up thy bed and walk. But so you may know that the son of man has power to both heal and to forgive sins, we're gonna do it this way. He's, he's trying to push them to realize that the physical events that were changing before their eyes were evidence of a spiritual power that dwelt within him through whom God worked. Nicodemus picked up on the cue. He said, we know that no one could do these kinds of things except God be with him. And so in doing so, he's showing the exertion of his will and his authority on earth and saying, this is just a taste of the kingdom that is to come. This is who I am. This is what I want the world to look like. And I have the power to make it so. So good. Very, very, very articulate. Thank you for that, Luke. So let's take the focus now off 
Jesus, Joe, uh, where we obviously know that he he did conduct miracles. And let's let's broaden it to Christians in general, but specifically to the Christian faith. Um, what is the primary purpose for miracles for the church? Um, why why is it important that we have a understanding and belief as we do that God does and can still work miracles today? So why are miracles still important um, for the the church? Well, remember that miracles were foundational. They were acts of God that were supernatural, that set them apart from all the other actions of men. And they laid the foundation and the premise that if God can heal the sick, if he can raise the dead, if he can cleanse the leper, he certainly can raise me from the dead. He certainly can cleanse me. He certainly can save me. So it was a validation of the Christian worldview as a whole. In other words, in Acts 2.22, you find Luke writing in his history of the church, so to speak, and the spread of the gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to God to the people by miracles and accompanying signs and wonders which God did through him in your midst. So we have to remember that miracles always have two arrows pointing from them. One arrow points vertically to God that gives him glory and magnifies him for who he is and the power that he has to heal and to save and to do all things that man does not have that innate power to do. But it also has a second arrow pointing horizontally to man that confirms the message and the messenger. It confirms the doctrine and the body of faith that ultimately would be preached by the disciple or by Jesus himself. In other words, it distinguishes Jesus and the disciples from a faithful giver of the gospel, a bona fide teacher of truth from those who are charlatans and who want to deceive. So ultimately, miracles have a wonderful confirming power to them. Uh, They validate the Christian worldview, as well as the messenger. And that's important because anybody can come around and say just about anything they want. Uh, I could say anything uh, that, um, but to demonstrate what you've said, to validate what you've said through supernatural activity, then that person should have instant credibility with anybody. If Jesus rose from the dead, the credibility of Christ should go through the roof in people's mind because he not only said it, he proved it by the action itself. So miracles are such an important place in the Christian life. And God can work through people today. He can work through a person to heal somebody. He can do anything he wants. Uh, The fact of miracles is alive Uh, and well today. And, you know, again, it's another question that is an intramural debate within, you know, the Christian church as to whether uh, believers have those sign gifts. After all, Paul said, uh, have I not shown you the signs of an apostle? And those miraculous works would have been an accompanying sign to validate his authority as an apostle. So miracles, very important. They give glory to God and they confirm the message in the messenger. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for that, Joe. You know, before I ask you guys as 
our practice to give some recommended books. I thought it would be important for our listeners to actually hear a testimony of what plausibly and what I consider to to be a miracle. And that is uh, with my wife, Melanie. And this is when we were living in Southern California, and I was a host on a radio broadcast with Pastor Chuck Smith called Pastor's Perspective. And I remember my wife waking up in great, great pain. And I remember it distinctly because it was during the World Cup and I was watching soccer, of course. And the pain was so great that I said, okay, we've got to take her to the hospital. Well, we go to the hospital. And as you guys know, sitting in the waiting room, it takes hours and then they start doing all the tests and so on and so forth. And they took x-rays of of her ovaries. And I remember the day as if it was yesterday. The doctor called me in privately. He put the x-rays up on the light board and he began to, to proceed to tell me that all these little connecting fibers you're seeing is is cancer and that this cancer has attached itself to other organs and that this is very 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 serious and as you could imagine i my heart sank i was just beside myself i went in and bawled you know with melanie and you know by this time her parents were there in the hospital and it, it was looking very, very grim. Well, I was supposed to be doing the radio with Pastor Chuck. And Pastor Chuck obviously got wind that I was in the hospital and that he had heard what the prognosis was from this doctor. And Chuck um, took the time on Pastor's perspective to ask everyone in, in, in the nation who was listening to stop and pray. Pray that God would do something miraculous in Melanie's um, body. And, you know, of course, I was just so overwhelmed with grief and everything that um, I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm thankful he did that. And, of course, um, I was off the radio for a few days. Well, fast forward, um, come to the time of surgery, which is another story of itself. She was fast, tra- she was fast tracked. And... The surgery was done, and the doctor, the surgeon, called me in afterwards down there in San Diego and said, well, I've got good news and bad news. And I said, okay, give me the bad news. She goes, well, it was definitely cancer. And she goes, but the good news is it was self-enclosed within the ovary or, or, or in the tumor, tumor the size of an orange or something of that nature. She said, and the other thing is it, it was slow moving. So she said, whatever that initial doctor saw, and she said, I saw the same x-rays that he did. I, I really don't know what happened. I could give you some explanations, but, but as it sounds like, that this is not as bad as what we initially thought. And so the surgery was successful. Um, Melanie's now been cancer-free for over 15 years, but here, here's where it's really cool, is that we bumped into the emergency room doctor just so happened we saw him outside of of the hospital and he pulled both melanie and i aside and he said this he goes i did not misdiagnose her condition 
He goes, I have seen this multiple times. I have, I have been in the medical field for, you know, many, many years. And he said, the only thing I could tell you that happened to you is it was a miracle. And so that is my one experience with something that was talked quite openly by this doctor as a miracle. And, uh, and of course, and it is in modern day. And, and I've used the story multiple times to do exactly what you said, Joe, to give God glory for something that he did, because it surely wasn't the doctors. It surely wasn't, it wasn't, um, me, uh, of little faith. It was probably precipitated by Pastor Chuck asking people around really the, the country and world to pray and God elected to 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 move. And so miracles are possible and they are probable. And I uh, I think I've I've seen it firsthand, um, which is pretty cool. With that said now, uh, Luke and Joe, what books would you recommend for our listeners on not only the possibility and probability of miracles, but on the fact that miracles do happen. We'll start with you, Joe. Wow, that's uh, that's a great opportunity to share some good information that I've gleaned from um, over the years. One was uh, by Norman Geisler, Miracles and the Modern Mind. Uh, he takes uh, you know a look at miracles, a biblical look, and actually places it up against a more modern secular worldview, especially the scientific-minded, and treats it in a way that answers those questions. Very, very informative. That's Miracles in the Modern Mind by Norman Geisler. And then you have Miracles uh, by C.S. Lewis. You know how he is with words. He's a wordsmith and really can illuminate this whole concept of miracles and deal with objections with very clear insight. So those are my two recommendations, Brian. Great. How about you, Luke? I think my first recommendation is it's dated, but the, the, uh, the content is timeless and you have a book called the silence of God by Sir Robert Anderson. And in this, he goes through a number of different objections that have been raised about miracles. Have miracles ceased? The evidential value of miracles. And he just provides some very straightforward, common sense, well-reasoned argumentation to oppose really what we would call the rationalists that were really on the wax during that period of time, late 19th century, and a lot of the objections that they had raised. So it's a great study. And interestingly enough, I'm going to recommend another book from a counter perspective, just to give people a context. So many people oppose miracles. It's sort of become a colloquial thing where it gets rejected out of hand, all due to the big names who have opposed them. You know, we talked about Spinoza and we've talked about um, Hume. And then there's the more recent iterations of them who hilariously are trying to use the same arguments, people like Dawkins or Hitchens or Harris. But a lot of this goes back, not all the way, but to Colonel Ingersoll, one of the more famous, what they called the infidel sage. 
he uses the same nomenclature. And so I, I would recommend just for a point of, of contrast, the some of the more recent origins of the arguments that are being used that are taken apart by people like Francis Schaeffer, Robert, Robert, Sir Robert Anderson, or C.S. Lewis. So that's lectures of Colonel Ingersoll from the opposing point of view to, to really put some continuity as to the fact these arguments have been defeated for a very long time, but they keep being redeployed. Mm. And I'll throw in um, In Defense of Miracles by Gary Habermas. You know, it, it, it's a, a good book where he look, he uses uh, uh, other theologians to look at the, the, the issue of miracles. Of course, from a journalistic standpoint, um, A Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel, where he investigates some of the miraculous claims. And then, Joe, I'm going to toot your horn. Um, in your book, Harvest Handbook of Apologetics, Chapter 52, there's an excellent chapter on miracles uh, there as well. So a lot of resources for our listeners. Um, and, and really, we would encourage our listeners to, to dig deep into the topic and, and pick up some of the books we just mentioned. So Joe, Luke, as usual, it was a blessing having you on the broadcast. As well for me, uh, Brian. Thank you, Luke and Brian. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Glad to be here. Join us next time as we continue our discussion on the question, can the Bible be trusted? Until next time, proclaim the gospel, equip the saints, and defend the faith.